Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jennifer Marie Brissette, whose debut novel, Elysium, which has the subtitle The World After, was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award and was also a Locus New and Notable book. She's not only a writer, but she's also played another important role in the book world. She was someone all authors depend on for their survival, someone who sold books. In her case, Jennifer Marie Brissett founded and ran for several years the Brooklyn independent bookstore Indigo Cafe and Books. Thank you very much for joining me. And thank you very much for having me. Really great to be here. Congratulations also on your nomination for the Philip K. Dick Award. Thank you. Yeah, it was a wonderful surprise, and I'm very happy that that happened. Um, When when that does happen, how do you find out? Does someone call you, or you just happen to see it online? I saw it on Twitter. I was was visiting with some relatives at the Empire State Building, and I happened to stop for some coffee, and I looked on my Twitter feed, and there it was, and I nearly hyperventilated in the middle of Starbucks. (laughs) It was kind of a neat way to be with all my family when something like that happens. Wonderful. And let's hear it for Twitter. That's great. Yeah. Let's dive in. I want to ask you about Elysium. It has so many great ingredients. There's a love story. There's disaster and survival, alien invasion, illness, memory. I'm curious, when you talk about the book, how do you describe it, and what themes do you find yourself emphasizing or talking about the most? Wow. Um, well, I think about um, uh, sorrow and loss, mostly, um, and I think of it as a, a book of mourning. And um, all those things that you just described, for, for me, as I was writing the book, are really all just metaphors for that process. You know, the world coming to an end, like a relationship that you treasured that was that 
that relationship, that special, special something, and it's gone. Yeah, it's kind of like the world coming to an end, um, if that's clear at all. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think that was conveyed very much in the book. I kept thinking of that, too, because there is the recurrence of death and loss and... You know, it made me think of of when my mother died, you know, because you, Mm. interestingly, you deal with basically every kind of love there is in the book. There's fraternal love, filial love, sexual, gay, straight, you know, marriage. And, of course, the heroes have various iterations. You know, at times they feel like the same character, except sometimes they're brothers and sometimes it's father-son, siblings and... Yeah, I don't. I did that somewhat on purpose. Um, I mean, as I was going, I, you know, I would think, you know, what kind of relationship would I like to explore? As I was going, I kind of was thinking about that consciously. And the only relationship that I sort of left out was the mother-daughter relationship, which is something that I'm sort of struggling with in my next book. Mm. And my next book is more dealing with the um, the myth of Persephone and Demeter, and uh, so. This book, I really did want to explore how all these different relationships, even though they're different, love is is a very powerful thing. And that friendships and brother-sisters and brother-brother uh, and all, all these types of relationships, they, they're, they're, they tie you together. And losing that is a very difficult thing to go through, and the mourning process of that is very difficult. It, they're similar but different. And so I just wanted to explore all of that. And if it's not too personal, can I ask, is there a particular relationship in your life that that is sort of the wellspring that you draw upon, a particular loss, in fact, that, that when you're envisioning these various intimate relationships and the rupture, is there is there something you're drawing on? I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm an adult, so, so I've gone through a lot of different relationships at this stage. So yeah, there are lots of, you know, I, I've I've gained and lost various people in my life. But, I mean, really what was sort of inspired it for me was uh, going through 9-11 because I was here and my store was open at the time. And you just saw just an amazing array of loss, an amazing array of relationships shattered. And you couldn't help but empathize with all these people who really be- we became one people at that time, searching for each other, losing each other. You know, the stories go on and on about what happened when those towers went down, and also, you know, me watching the people streaming across Brooklyn Bridge covered in dust, and you know, people hugging each other because you know they thought they were gone, they couldn't contact them, the cell phones were working, and here they come so and so up the street. You know, and or you're looking for so and so and you can't find them, and, and you know whether it was your sister or whether it was your husband or whether it was a, a, a gay couple looking for. I mean, it, it was all the same. It was all the same kind of devastation and and wondering of what happened to your loved one, and that's also a big a part of the um, of the book. If you notice that a lot of after each, I guess you would call it iteration, you never really know what happened to so-and-so. So you're left with a question, what happened? Even though you know they're, they're most likely gone, you just don't know what happened. For me, that was definitely a metaphor for, for 9-11. Because some people just never 
saw their loved one again. It was just, that's it. They were gone. So that's what I was exploring in the book. Wow, this is getting so sad so quickly. <laughs> well, that's okay. I mean, it... Yeah, yes, okay. Maybe it would be a good idea just to talk a little bit more about the book structure. Okay. I hope this isn't a spoiler for anyone, uh, and I don't think it should be because the publisher has said some of this up front on the jacket, basically describing how there is this computer program in the story that has been embedded in the atmosphere or it's somehow wrapped around the earth. I'm not exactly sure because even that, the way that's described, has its different iterations. And the program basically serves as a tribute to a lost love, someone who's died. And it seems to me that it also partly serves as a way to store the memory of the human civilization in the wake of an alien invasion. But there's a glitch or error in the program. So the world and therefore the narrative becomes an interwoven tale of kind of like reboots, reboots of memory, of imagination, of reality. And I don't know if I quite... If oh, I've... you did very well. Oh. <laughs> that, was, that, was very, that was very good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you got it pretty well. Um, well, good. So then I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about the idea, like how this idea came about and how it evolved. Well, I mean, this is all spoilerific, so... I'm just going to give warnings to anybody listening, but I mean, the alien has tripped upon this encoded program that's been floating around in the Earth's atmosphere and really trying to sort of glean what the information that it has in there. And the information in there is, is our history, who we are, what we were, what happened to us, why are we gone? And in this attempt to glean this information, the computer itself, the system itself is actually sort of fighting it in terms of giving it information. So things are getting a bit scrambled. And so you're getting some Roman history mixed in with New York and, and Vestal Virgins walking around and modern cities and you have people flying and you have all kinds of stuff. And so it kind of sets things up as, you know, who can, can you trust the narrator? Can you trust the story that's being told, there's, there's glimmers of truth, there's glimmers of what really happened, but you're not quite sure where, where, where things are, when things are, are scrambled and when things are really actually the truth. But the underlying element of all of this is that these, these, this relationship that, or relationships, because they could be a, a lot of different people experiencing the same thing. I'm throwing it out there that these are not necessarily just two people. This could be a combination of a whole bunch of people and their lives being sort of slammed together. And you're sort of experiencing little glimmers of what it was like for them to just lose everything. And the whole thing for me was this crazy experience of just a repeat of loss. And, and isn't that what a disaster is? You know, you see a mass grave and you're just like, wow, that's a lot of dead people. <laughs> and it just becomes just like a thing. But really, that's a whole bunch of stories, a whole bunch of people who lived and loved and were lost and all jumbled together. And that's what the earth really has become. It's just an empty place full of memory. I completely get it. And um, 
I see, you know, how 9-11 makes sense, although it, it hadn't even occurred to me. There's so many elements, you know, that I recall myself that I now see reflected in the book, even down to the dust. There's this recurring theme of there being yeah. dust that's basically poisonous in the book that came with the, the collapse of the Twin Towers and the endless searching that people went on and that that real need for closure that just wasn't possible. And I see now how in many of the, the stories and relationships, there wasn't that closure. Someone just disappears. Someone goes yeah. out saying, I'll be back and I'll be there for you. And then they just disappear. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in a strange way, I mean, I've, see, I've heard other people say that they didn't really see the 9-11 part. And in a way, that makes me sort of glad. Because as much as that was an influence, I wanted the story to sort of be more universal than that and it was like a real struggle to sort of not just zoom in on that one moment because that one moment was like that was here in New York at a particular time but it happened things like that have happened all over the world even since then where you know bombings in Iraq and Afghanistan and Palestine and all over the world everyone has has learned to experience this sort of the horror of a tragedy like this and I mean, in, in a strange way, it's to use science fiction in this way. Maybe it's not the, the typical thing <laughs> to do to um, to sort of explore these sort of real life stuff. But I, I really didn't see any other way of sort of dealing with it. I mean, it's kind of like Kurt Vonnegut dealing with the bombing of Dresden. I mean, he he, he writes Slaughterhouse Five and it's all these things called wrapped together. I mean, it's, it's a comedy. It's a science fiction story. It's a story of this little guy and his wife. And it's all these different things layered together. And, and maybe that's just how you process big, explosive tragedies like that sometimes. I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't want to compare myself to Vonnegut in that way, but you know what I mean? I'm just trying to, you know, like how things got so, so, um, layered so quickly. You do have a historical note at the end of the book where you talk about the Roman Emperor Hadrian and Antonus, his his young lover. And Antinous. Antinous. Yeah. Okay. Antinous. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. No problem. <laughs> I mean, wasn't familiar with the, the story of Hadrian. And Hadrian became obsessed with the loss of this lover and created memorials continuously in his yeah. honor. And and I guess that is kind of what uh, happens in the story because the, the computer program itself is a memorial of sorts. Yeah. In a way, when I was reading about um, Hadrian, oh, so many years ago, I was, it was like one of those stories that sort of stick in the back of your mind that you're just like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this piece of information, but I just, it just sort of touched me. Because um, Hadrian was uh, one of the five great emperors, and he had this lover, this young man, that they run around the, you know, the Roman world and just living life and partying. And, and then when Antinous is gone, you know, Hadrian does kind of seem to go crazy. And I remember this quote because his Praetorian guard were always trying to protect him from himself because he was always trying to kill himself because <laughs> he just didn't want to live anymore. Um, so he started to become more harsh with people and started to, you know, he, he was never really known for executing people. He was more of a diplomat. He was um, a theologian, a poet, an architect, and um, just a really learned guy. But after at the loss of Antinous, he really 
loses it and he said something to the effect of I can kill everyone but myself and I, I, I was always just really struck with that statement just how devastated he was and the, the idea of him creating memorials all over the Roman world is just you know it just seemed obsessive and a little kind of crazy you know there there's statues everywhere of this guy and there's a um, there's a cult that still somewhat practices I think it's called the the cult of Antinous that still practices some places and my, my, my thesis mentor he suggested that I think of a scene as because I had like a couple of chapters that I was sort of roughing out and as soon as he said that and I really sat down and thought about it for a couple of days it sort of just snapped into my head this old story of Hadrian and Antinous and I thought you know I think I could do something with this I think if, if this guy is repeating the, a part of the story structure why don't just keep repeating this thing, keep repeating this loss to sort of echo, and that's how the the structure came about. I mean, I had no idea that this was going to work. I mean, I think maybe, the, and, and that's one of the things I learned also from working on this book, is that you don't know what's going to work until you try it. So you just put some faith into your, your abilities and just try it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But in this case, I, I think it did. Right, and I didn't realize this was your this was your master's, your thesis for your MFA, your Master's of Fine Arts. Yes, at uh, the, the Stone Coast program back in 2011. Uh, it was a great program, and they were incredibly supportive of me, supportive of this crazy project <laughs> that I uh, of writing this writing this book. So. Well, you know, I've. I've heard some people criticize MFA programs for creating a kind of homogenized writer. Like there's a notion that there's just a certain way to write. And yet I think the fact that your book, your structure is so ambitious and unconventional, that sort of speaks against that. That sort of, it sounds like they encouraged you in your on your unique path. They didn't say, oh, no, no, that's not how you write a novel. Yeah, I think it was the, the kind of program that I was in. I mean, um, it was a, it's a special program and, um, with, with really special people in it. And I, I mean, I can't really speak for how other MFA programs. And this was also an, um, a low residency. So I think that might affect certain things. Low residency means you, uh, you didn't have to be there all the time? Exactly. That's great. And that's, that's the Stone Coast MFA program? Yes. And the way Stone Coast is set up, a 10-day residency twice a year, once in the summer and once in the winter, and you would be assigned a mentor for the rest of the year that you would send a packet of your writing and they would give you like a critique uh, or advice or whatever back and um, once a month. So, you know, it's a two-year program, and it really allowed me to sort of sort of get my footing as a writer. Because I, I really went into the program very, very unsure that I could do this. I mean, I, had, I hadn't published a story when I applied. My first story got published just before I got the acceptance. And I really wasn't sure that there was a space for me in this writing world. That, that, and, I mean, and to a certain degree, I still sort of wonder. But the idea that, um, that I could write and that I and that my stories are worthy of being told was something that this program really helped to foster in me and I had some really great mentors while I was there uh, James Patrick Kelly was amazing uh, David Anthony Durham was super supportive 
insightful. <laughs> Ted Deppi, who was a poet, which is, you know, usually in the, in the field, in, um, in the pop fiction section, everybody just wants to be with pop fiction writers, but I wanted to spread my wings a little bit and I got a poet and Ted Deppi is, was amazing. He really, really fostered the language and, and really appreciate the language of, of what I was trying to do in my work, not just the plot and not just the world building and not just, um, all that kind of stuff, but really, the metaphors, themes, language, rhythm, those kinds of things. And then, of course, Elizabeth Hand was my final thesis mentor. And, I mean, I'm actually speechless when it comes to her because she, 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 she saw what I was doing and was wise enough to never discourage me about it and, you know, didn't even tell me that what I was doing was crazy, which probably anybody else would have done. But you just said, you know, this book, you know, it's, what you're doing here scares me a little bit, but <laughs> keep going. And um, that really, you know, that kind of encouragement to sort of say, oh, wow, wow, what you're doing is interesting. Look at this book. Look at that book. You know, I started looking at Sappho and, and, and different kinds of um, um, women writers that I just never heard of before with her. And it really helped me to sort of move the book to a conclusion. You know, I think everyone recognizes, or I have to say, I hope everyone recognizes and acknowledges the importance of diverse voices in literature. But I wanted to ask you how you think being black and being a woman has contributed or helps shapes the worlds that you create and you build in your writing. Well, um, hmm. well, I would also add to that list my age because I'm starting much later than most people. I'm 46. I just turned 46 last week. Ah, congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think all those factors... Okay, let me just start with the age part. I think be bringing a lot of my experience into my work, a lot of uh, the things that I've seen in my work is part of the diversity of the, of the voices that I tend to build in my, in my stories and in, my, uh, and in the, um, the books that I've been writing. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a little too early for me to really tell how being black has been affecting me in the field. I'm sure it has. Racism is a kind of a funny thing because <laughs> you can't always tell when somebody's rejected your work just because of X, Y, and Z. It's interesting with this book, I've seen more homophobic stuff than anything else. Um, I haven't any, had anybody come straight out and say, I don't like your book because you're black and you have black characters, but I've definitely seen people uh, trash my book because they have gay characters in there. My trans character has gotten a lot of black, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It's, it's, it's just been um, slightly painful because I didn't really see that coming. I guess I should have, <laughs> but I didn't really, maybe I was more expecting, you know, more racism than I than I've received. Um, but the book has only been out for about about three months. Yeah, it came out in December, right? Yes, December first. So a lot has happened very quickly, which is really awesome because it has been received very well. Obviously, I got the nomination for the Phil K. Dick Award, so that you know, so that says a lot right there. I, I think a lot of people also didn't know that I was black because you know it, it's not obvious by looking at the cover or even looking at my name or 
I'm, I'm sort of coming out of nowhere in a in certain kind of way because people really didn't know who I was before the book came out at all. And people are sort of figuring out, oh, she's a, she's a black woman. And I was like, okay, you know, we're going to have to see how this pans out. <laughs> you know, I'm shocked, too, that people would be upset. Well, I mean, science fiction, I feel like that's the most liberated kind of literature there is. And if you can't right. expect people to be any kind of way, I mean, they can have wings, for God's sake, in science fiction and in fantasy, the, the notion of different kinds of sexual expression or sexuality, let alone like skin color appearance. I mean, yeah, I'm, I, I'm surprised, too, that people would react hostily. Yeah, so. I've, I've had some um, crits on, on, on Goodreads and on, um, and on Amazon over that. And, and it's been sort of hard because as an author, you're not supposed to respond. And um, and so I don't. I just sort of read it and go, OK, <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. You know, they have the right to say those things. That's fine. Um, go ahead. To understand some, some people's idea of understanding what science fiction is. It's to understand that they're not really thinking about the future. They're thinking of an extension of the present. And the idea of science fiction really could be different, you know, that really could encompass people that they've just never noticed before. Terrifies some people. It absolutely terrifies them. And this has been something that goes back to the very beginning of science fiction. We have a misnomer. We think it's about the new things that we'll have to... To, to make our cars go or, you know, the new machines that we will have, the, the little gadgets that will make our lives a little bit easier. And, of course, those things come with it. I mean, we have cell phones now. It's wonderful. It's great. You get to call people and you get to do this thing called Skype. It's wonderful. But the lives that we will live, I think the civil rights movement was probably the most science fictional thing that could have probably happened. Because all of a sudden, this entire group of people that was totally ignored showed up for the table and said, we want in. The future belongs to everybody. It doesn't really belong to any one group. And yet, when you see visions of the future, it's usually mostly white, heterosexual people wanting around, living and doing whatever. I mean, I remember as a kid watching the Jetsons and thinking, that is an absolutely terrifying image of the future. Where are all the black people? Oh, my <laughs> God. That's so funny. And, and they're hovering above the earth. I mean, what happened to the that they don't want to be down there? I mean, it's like an absolutely terrifying image of the future. And that was sort of like very cool idea back in the 60s, the idea of people living like that. And, you know, where, where did we go? What happened to us? What happened to all the Asian people and the Latinos and all that? What happened? It's they went, perfectly they, petrifying. They went on the Starship Enterprise. That's where they went. Oh, that's, that's where they went. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just the idea of writing science fiction that sees a future where everyone is there is something, you know, like Octavia Butler did so very well. And, I mean, she was almost like my first teacher about this, is that it's important that we give a chance for everyone to be seen doing something and being alive or being in existence because we're here now. Why would we go away? And uh, not too many people are very um, comfortable with that idea. 
and uh, and they're fighting it. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff going on in science fiction. I mean, if you looked it up, you'd see oh gosh, all kinds of fighting and and arguing and 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 just you know ugly stuff. I'm kind of fortunate because I'm coming at the tail end of a lot of those arguments now, and you're starting to see a lot of people of color, a lot of gay lesbian writers doing. You know, um, Sam Miller is doing wonderful work. You know, Richard Bowles been always doing wonderful. Work. You don't make skin tone in the book a, a big deal, but it's clear that a lot of the characters are various shades of brown. Mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful irony that apparently the illness that the aliens have brought to Earth doesn't affect people with melanin as much as it does, you know, just white people. So that blackness is actually uh, offers this this clear advantage to um, to the characters. Yes, I mean, it eventually affects them as well. But I mean, obviously, it does because it changes their bodies, and they're starting to get sick as well. But um, but it affects the uh, people with less melanin a lot more, a lot faster, and they get sick. I wanted to ask you about owning a bookstore. Actually, I, I must have been a one wonderfully fun when you did it, but I, I can imagine also, given the state of bookselling, that it probably was really challenging as well. Well, it was the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it was really a tough thing to have done, and it was kind of a crazy thing to have tried. And I look back on it, and I think to myself, now I think to myself, I'm glad I did it, but for a long time. I would say, no, why was I thinking it was really just a crazy, crazy thing to have tried? Um, book selling is tough. It's very, very tough. Um, back then, we didn't, the internet wasn't doing any of the stuff that it's doing today. What, what years was this that you owned um, the bookstore in Brooklyn? Well, I started building it in 99, and I believe I opened it in 2000, and I closed it in 2004. So just as we, like about... I, like a year or so after we opened, 9-11 happened. You know, when we first opened it, you know, we were still, the dot-com thing was still going, so there were still people with money and jobs happening, and then we had that crazy election with George Bush and Al Gore when we didn't know who had won for like a month. Oh, yeah, crazy. It was absolutely insane, and we just, you just knew something, this was going to get just weirder as we went along, and it did. It just, I mean, it just, it just, got weirder and weirder and the and the field at the time the 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 book field at the time was doing a lot of consolidation a lot of um small publishers were being gobbled up by bigger publishers um random house became huge now it's random house penguin there was just so much craziness going on in the field and people were losing their jobs um major editors were losing their jobs at, at various book companies and you know people just didn't know what to, to do this was that you know the harry potter remember that <laughs> when everybody in the field was pretty much depending on harry potter to sort of keep us going and small bookstores couldn't even get a copy i couldn't get one none of the small com- they were all going to the barnes and noble chain you're kidding and the oh yeah, they just literally would told us no, you're not getting it. And we would have, I had a friend who had a bookstore, uh, more toward Bed Stuy, and she focused more on children. So they had, she had a lot of uh, kids who wanted to do that opening party, you know, at midnight when they right. would open up the boxes and all that. She wanted to do that, and she she gave me a call. She's like, could you get your, could you get any of these books? And I'm like, no, they won't sell them to me. And they, I mean, the Harry Potter thing was just insane but it was a temporary 
thing. I mean, it was couldn't continue. I mean, we all knew that it was one of these seven books anyway, but the, the industry was just so focused on that to the detriment of everything else that when that went away, the field just really imploded on itself. It was already imploding, but it was this really... It was bad. And I remember, you know, talking to people in the store and they thought I was crazy when I said that um, I think the chain's about to crumble. And they're like, no, you just, because you're a small store, you're jealous and you're having a hard time and you don't really know what you're talking about. I'm like, I'm behind here, the, this counter, and I can see it happening. These chains are about to crumble. And then, you know, about two, three years after I said that, you know, Borders goes away. And now Barnes & Noble, I don't know, it's just barely holding on. Yeah, yeah, wow. And I know, and Amazon is definitely a factor in that. You were really on the on the front lines. Oh, yeah, a lot of us booksellers were. We could see what was happening. We could, we could still see what's happening. I think the small presses are going to be the savior of us all. They just need to hold on. Well, it's interesting because one could argue that having seen what you saw you would say, I'm not going to become a writer. Why would I become a writer <laughs> given this? Although I guess I know myself as a writer, it, it comes from a different place. I mean, maybe for some people it comes from the idea of I'm going to make money at it. But I know for me, I imagine for you, but you could tell me the source is different. It's like, I feel like yeah. I have a story to tell, you know? I mean, you have to be, you have to love this deal to be here. If you're here for money, then you really are certifiably crazy. <laughs> because it's just it this is this is this field is <laughs> yes, some people make money. Okay. There are the Neil Gaimans of the world, they're the um the, the mystery writer, Stephen Stephen King. Stephen King, thank you. And yeah, and all these kind of guys. But yeah, okay, they're fine. Most writers, most publishers, most people, you know, we're just sort of hanging on. And we sort of do this because we love it. We love the written word. We love what we're doing. We love how it makes us feel. It loves what we, we get to share. It, it, we love leaving something behind of ourselves and of what we've experienced and, and of what we've seen, some of our imagination, you know. I mean, I have a, a friend who just recently passed. Her name is uh, Yugi uh, Yuji Foster, and um, she died at age 42. And she mm -hmm. left behind these just gorgeous stories, just gorgeous stories. I mean, who's going to forget her? How can you forget her when she just left behind this legacy of just, I think there's like over a 100 of these wonderfully crafted fantasy stories that she did. And that's why you do this. I'm sure she didn't make really that much, if any, money doing this. But that's not why we're in the game. And that's not why I write. If, if I did this for the money, you're right. There's, there's no way I would do this. This is just not, this is insane. But that's not why we do this. It's, it's all about love. It really is. Mm, so writing is about love, and your book Elysium is about love. Oh, see how that ties together there. I saw what you did there. Yeah, well, I guess that means that this is a good note on which to end. I mean, what better note than on, on love to conclude our conversation? Okay, that's fine. That was great. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and good luck with the Philip K. Dick Award. I know they're going to announce it in April. In, in, in April. Um, I'm up against some pretty heavy hitters. So, so you know, we'll, you know, 
I'm just I'm just happy to, to 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 be among the number, but you know I'm not exactly holding my breath on that. I'm just really just tickled to to have a nomination, um, especially with my first book. So I feel privileged to have been able to interview you, and I actually have interviewed two other of your fellow nominees. Oh, lovely! Emmy Taranta uh, was one of my first interviews, and then Rod Duncan was my interview just immediately preceding you. So, cool. yeah, so I feel privileged just to have to have brushed against you all <laughs> through the through the power of the internet. Let's uh, let's wrap this up. I've been talking to Jennifer Marie Brissett about her Philip K. Dick Award-nominated book, Elysium, subtitled Or the World After. It was published by Aqueduct Press. I hope anyone listening goes out and buys Elysium so you can find out what we have been talking about here and enjoy the power of Jennifer Brissett's writing. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you so much. You can listen to more podcasts at our website, www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com or on iTunes and other podcasting apps. If you've been enjoying my conversations with authors, please leave a review. That'll help others find the podcast so they won't miss interviews with amazing cutting-edge authors like Jennifer Marie Brissett. You can find New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy on Facebook and on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. I'm Rob Wolf. Follow me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau, theme music by Michael Aaron. The editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And my guest next month will be Claire North, author of The First 15 Lies of Harry August, and also just out in February, her new novel, Touch. So stay tuned, and thanks so much for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.